Today we're going to look at the book Made in America by Sam Walton. What I liked about this book was it was Walton's point of view from the very early days of his life all through the start of Walmart and the growth of Walmart and it gives us a good point of view through the early 90s when the book was published. Uh, Walton passed away um, toward the end of the writing process of this book. So we get a little bit of a filtered view, but mostly it seems like it's his language, and there's a few really nice themes in the book. Most of all, experimentation. Walton copied so much from so many other people. And that's really the success of Walmart, is that he figured out how to do all these things better, or how he was better suited to do all these things, and that was something that really contributed to uh, Walmart's success. Walmart was born in 1918, and he had a normal-ish Midwestern upbringing. He attended and graduated from the University of Missouri, and as the Great Depression ended, Walton took a job with J.C. Penney as a management trainee for $75 a month. In 1942, he meets his wife Helen while bowling, and through his own life experiences and lessons from Helen's father, Walton is ready for a career in retail, but he's interrupted by World War II. Though he was in the ROTC in college, a health condition prevents Sam Walton from international deployment, and instead he serves his time, um, serves his active duty time at POW camps in the States. While he was managing those POW camps, while he was serving, he was always looking at his retail opportunities. He was always trying to scope out what was working and why, and why people were doing things. This is what he writes, quote, our last army posting was in Salt Lake City, and I went to the library there and checked out every book on retailing. I also spent a lot of my off-duty time studying ZCMI, the Mormon Church's department store out there, just figuring that when I got back to civilian life, I would somehow get into the department store business, end quote. So he gets discharged from the army, the war is over, and he goes looking for a store. His wife Helen wants to live someplace pretty small, fewer than 10,000 people. And at 27 years old, Sam Walton buys a store. He uses 5,000 of his own savings and a $20,000 loan from Helen's father. That first store was in 1945, and it was a Ben Franklin franchise, and this is what Walton writes about that time. It was a real blessing for me to be so green and ignorant, because it was from that experience that I learned a lesson which has stuck with me all through the years. You can learn from everybody. The, the person he did the most learning from early on was his competitor across the street, um, and he used a lot of the Ben Franklin systems early on, at least to figure out uh, what exactly he should be doing. When I was a teaching assistant at Ohio University in Southeast Ohio, I remember um, having these students come into the classroom and they would give their student teaching lesson and they would use none of the things that we were teaching them in some of these introductory classes. And I wondered why, and they all thought that they could do things better and different than their own way. But the point I wanted to make to them, and the point that, that um, Walton figured out early on, was that you should try these other things that people suggest, and then you should improvise on them. And that was really something Walton did throughout his career. He saw someone else doing something, and he tried that, and if it worked, he kept doing it, and if it needed tweaked, he tweaked it. Um, this is what uh, Walton writes in the book. At the very beginning, I went along and ran my store by theirs, that is, the, the Ben Franklin franchise system, because I didn't really know any better. 
but it didn't take me long to start experimenting. That's just the way I am. That's how I've always been. This attitude of experimentation is something the Kelly brothers of IDEO Design suggest as a way to be more creative. Tom Kelly said that if you frame things as an experiment, you'll be more likely to get support from people to run those experiments. Why? Well, experiments are time-bound. They're valid. There's something can be true or false by the end, and they're often small. One of Walton's experiments was buying an ice cream machine. He wrote, I borrowed $1,800 from the bank. Then we rolled the ice cream machine out there on the sidewalk next to the popcorn machine, and I mean we attracted some attention with those two, and we really turned a profit on it. This sort of attraction would be the kind of honey Walton used throughout his small-town expansions. Not everything worked all the time, though. He wrote, Every crazy thing we tried hadn't turned out as well as the ice cream machine, of course, but we hadn't made any mistakes we couldn't correct quickly. None so big they threatened the business. Things weren't perfect even under the Ben Franklin model. For example, Walden found that the distribution system and the suppliers and the orders that Ben Franklin suggested weren't the things his customers necessarily wanted at prices they would pay. One of Walden's obstacles was the 80% threshold. He had to get 80% of his merchandise from Ben Franklin-approved distributors, and he towed and occasionally crossed that line. His stores grew, he expanded. He was a successful young businessman, active in the community and well-liked. This was it. He had made it. And then the rug was nearly literally pulled out from underneath him. His landlord in that first store in the first town wouldn't renew his lease. His landlord wanted to buy out Walton and give the Ben Franklin business to his son. With no other options, Walton sold, and he and Helen went looking for a new town. This was around 1950, and this setback was actually a blessing in disguise, Walton writes. The whole thing was probably a blessing. I had a chance for a brand new start, and this time I knew what I was doing. All I needed was a store. Helen still didn't want to live in a big city, and Sam wanted somewhere with good quail hunting. He found a spot in Bentonville, Arkansas, and with the last lesson fresh in his mind, he signed a 99-year lease. Opening in July of 1950, Walden introduces self-service to the area, an idea you can be assured he probably copied from somewhere else. It was another experiment for him to observe. For the grand opening, he has balloons for the kids, iced tea glasses for next to nothing, and other deals. A clerk who worked for Sam said, Mr. Walton just had a personality that drew people in. He would yell at you from a block away, you know. He would just yell at everybody he saw, and that's the reason so many liked him and did business in the store. It was like he brought in business by being so friendly. Besides being buddy-buddy, Walton also had flip-flops. Sam Walton had just returned from a trip to New York and told everyone at the store that flip-flops were going to be the item of the year. That same clerk said, I just laughed and said, no way will those things sell. They'll just blister your toes. But they sold. This was classic Sam Walton. He found something that he thought would be popular and he could sell for an inexpensive price, something where his customers would find value in it, and he bought it. About this time, this first store, Sam wrote, We were innovating, experimenting, and expanding. Somehow, over the years, folks have gotten the impression that Walmart was something I dreamed up out of the blue as a middle-aged man and that it was just this great idea that turned into an overnight success. It's true that I was 44 when we opened our first Walmart in 1962, but the store was totally an outgrowth of everything we've been doing since Newport. Another case of me being unable to leave well enough alone, another experiment. And, like most other overnight successes, it was about 20 years in the making. Walden replaced his wooden fixtures with metal ones, something he saw in the Sterling stores. 
This was one of Walton's great strengths, said early executives at Walmart. He's not afraid of being wrong. In fact, he doesn't worry about being wrong. And once he sees he's wrong, he shakes it off and heads in another direction. In the mid-1950s, Sam Walton catches franchise fever and buys a plane. Not a jet, an air coupe with a washing machine motor. It was such a rickety old plane, Walton's brother Bud wouldn't go near it for the next two years. But Sam loved that plane. He writes, Because it would go 100 miles an hour if you didn't have the wind against you, and I could get to places in a straight line. Walton did a lot of traveling. He was checking on his stores as he was expanding. He was scouting new locations. And he said that a plane could let him see traffic patterns. It could let him get there quicker. He could see road systems and developments for new stores. He said, once I took to the air, I caught store fever. Walton now has a dozen or so stores. His Ben Franklin and his own named variety store have a bit of this and a bit of that. He succeeds with spectacle and specials, but he's out and about seeing what other retailers are doing, and he notices a new trend, discounting. It's in 1955 that Soul Price opens FedMart in California, though the warehouse ideas of Price Club and Costco were still two decades away. Walton met another discounter named Herb Gibson, whose philosophy was, buy it low, stack it high, sell it cheap. Walton writes, by then I knew the discount idea was the future. Here we have this guy. His main skill is a love of retailing. He sees that the Ben Franklin model isn't evolving fast enough and that some other people have already skated to where the puck is going to be. It's in 1962 that Walton opens his first Walmart. He opens that first Walmart down the road from his Bentonville store. His manager, Bob Bogle, chose the name. Bogle was a Ben Franklin veteran like Walton, and he said that those Ben Franklin letters on the storefront were expensive to buy, operate, and repair. So he suggested something shorter, and we get the seven-letter Walmart. That first Walmart was very nearly a dump. One competitor said it was the worst retail experience he had ever seen. It was bad, Walton admits, but he writes, We were trying to find out if customers in a town of 6,000 people would come to our kind of barn and buy the same merchandise simply because of the price. The answer was yes. It was another successful small bet. Walton's early store wars were a constant evolution. His new store was free of the Ben Franklin brand distribution system and support, but that didn't mean Walton stopped learning from the company. Former president of Ben Franklin said that on one trip Walton came to see him, he just wanted to know all about how we were using computers and how we were planning to use them, and he took everything down on this yellow legal pad. Walton's yellow legal pad may as well have been another bodily appendage. It went with him everywhere. Later on, he switched to a tape recorder and would dictate notes as he went through different stores. This practice would one day actually get him kicked out of a Costco. Walmart's success, according to people like Charlie Munger, is due in part to copying the competition. This is what Munger said. How does a guy in Bentonville, Arkansas, with no money blow right by Sears Roebuck? He played the chain store game better and harder than anyone else. Walton invented practically nothing, but he copied everything anybody else did that was smart, and he did it with more fanaticism and better employee manipulation. Munger has it opening in small towns with limited competition helped Walton grow, and this may be true, Walton admits in the book, but in the early days it was all he could do. This is what he wrote. I can tell you this, though, after a lifetime of swimming upstream, I am convinced that one of the real secrets to Walmart's phenomenal success has been the very tendency, this is to be small, to experiment across geographical boundaries and to discount everything. Many of our best opportunities were created out of necessity. 
the things that we are forced to learn and do because we started out underfinanced and undercapitalized in these remote small communities contributed mightily to the way we've grown as a company. Early on, Sam Walton couldn't get distributors to ship to him, so he bought his own trucks, constructed his own warehouses, and developed his own processes. There were plenty of people in these small towns to shop at Walmart. Store number three opened to such a throng that Walton grabbed the tackle box to use as an impromptu cash register. Store number eight was in an old Coca-Cola bottling plant. Maybe modern today, but industrial chic wasn't a style then. People still came. As Walton expanded scouting locations with his plane, Walmart's geographical growth grew. His name was on the sign, but he often wasn't present. He tried to hire people he thought would work hard, and he enticed them by letting them become part owners. There were a few problems because, as he writes, most of the store managers owned a piece of their stores, so they were likely to be as concerned as I was. Walton and his growing group also tried to hire the right people. His early hires didn't want to hire college graduates. They had this idea that the college graduates wouldn't get down and scrub the floors and wash the windows. They didn't think they would be the kind of people who would go and load up a dolly and stock the shelves. They were looking for action-oriented, do-it-now-go type of people. On a much smaller scale, what Walton did with Walmart in Arkansas was what Harry Snyder did in California with In-N-Out Burger. Harry Snyder also wanted his employees to have some skin in the game, so he also created profit sharing. In the 1950s, the first In-N-Out Burger did well enough that Snyder wanted to expand. Like Walton, he couldn't be everywhere all the time, so he created this profit sharing. He also created a very strict uh, employee training called the Snyder Way. He, like Walton, thought location was really important. He took on no debt, so Snyder bought cheap land that was next to the interstate. And much like Walton, he couldn't be in the prime locations. But like Walton, he was in a good enough place, and the cities grew to them. These early Walmart stores didn't operate with a lot of central planning. Beyond Sam Walton, they operated with none. Walton hired well and let his people do what they thought best. Walton was always encouraging his managers to buy things cheap so they could pass the savings on to the customer, and one manager ended up buying so much detergent that he stacked a pyramid 12 to 18 cases high. It ran all the way up to the ceiling, Walton writes in the book. It was 75 or 100 feet long. It took up a whole aisle along the back of the store. It was 12 feet wide. You could hardly get past it. But, but it worked. He allowed his people to try things, to do things that were different. Um, but these different experiments didn't always work. He also writes about this time when they bought a boatload of moon pies. This is what Walton writes in the book. For a while there, I got to thinking that maybe I was just a genius at picking these items. They all did so well. But I finally realized that it was because I was the chairman and because they knew I'd be coming into their store sooner or later, our associates would get at it on those items I chose and move those things right out. I learned how to be careful the time we promoted the moon pies. If you don't know, moon pies are these gooey marshmallow snacks. Uh, Sam Walton notes that they're they're pretty popular in the South. They're more popular in the South than they are in other parts of the United States. But they shipped a uh, boatload up to Minnesota, and these things just did not sell. And maybe here we should take a moment to pause and reflect on Walton's experiments. He's willing to try almost anything so long as it isn't fatal. He, he understands the trader's maxim, the investor's maxim, not to blow up. And we see this in other examples. Wilbur Wright wrote in his journal, 
The man who wishes to keep at the problem long enough to really learn anything positively must not take dangerous risks. Carelessness and overconfidence are usually more dangerous than deliberately accepted risks. We see this in other domains too. Matt Patricia, when he was with the New England Patriots, said, We talk a lot that before you win, you have to learn not to lose. Walden is willing to have painful lessons, but not fatal ones, and he minimizes what can happen with small stores, long leases, discounted merchandise, experienced people, owner-managers, and a yellow notepad full of ideas that have already been tested and proven. These are all crucial ingredients to the early days of Walmart. Walden's attitude at the time was what works for us. He writes, We paid absolutely no attention whatsoever to the way things were supposed to be done. So we move into the early 60s, 1962 to 1967. He opens 25 stores. And there's a time cost to all of this traveling, to all of this expansion, to all of the stuff that Sam Walton is trying to do. He's got a family. He's got kids. He's trying to be involved in the community. This is what his wife said. Sam did teach Sunday school for a while, but even then he had unusual work habits. During one period in Newport, he would work until 10 on Saturday night, and then he'd get up and go right back in Sunday morning. We were supposed to be taking turns getting the kids to Sunday school, and to get four little kids dressed for church with nobody to help me was a little unreal. It's true that we had less time with Sam after Walmart, but don't get the idea that he wasn't working most of the time before that. Running a business and coaching a youth soccer team are nearly mutually exclusive. You need support and you can't do everything. Marcus Lamonis understands this. He's a modern-day version of, hmm, kind of Sam Walton. This is what he said. To be a business owner, it's not a glamorous job. It requires you to make a lot of personal sacrifices. If you want to meet a business owner with a great home life and a great life balance, they're probably BSing you a little bit. It's very difficult to be a business owner and have balance. I'll be honest with you, I don't have a good work-life balance. The modern Walton might actually be on Musk, and this is what Morgan Housel said about being that type of person. If you want to be an Elon Musk-type character, you need to work 100 hours for years, maybe decades on end. There's no way around it. There's no part-time founder's job. One way Walton did figure out to spend more time with his family and kids was to uh, take them on vacation. He combined work and pleasure. And to his kids, looking back through the eyes of this book, it, it wasn't that bad. This is what Helen, his daughter, writes about these combining business and pleasure trips. It was great. We would get in the station wagon, four brats and the dog, strap the canoe on top, and hitch up a homemade trailer behind, and take off for a different part of the country every summer. We would always do it as long as Dad could stop and see his stores along the way. He would usually get us situated, set up camp, and then Mother would stay at camp with us while he took off to look at the stores. We learned to work together, and everybody had their chores, and at night we prayed together. With his stores expanding and Walton checking out places on vacation, he kept learning from other people. He writes, I'll bet I've been in more Kmarts than anybody. And he goes on, I've stolen, I actually prefer the word borrowed, as many ideas from sole price as anybody else in the business. One of the things he copied was the distribution system of Abe Marks of Hartfield Zodis. Marks uh, tells this story uh, about Walton in the book. What we helped him with in the early days was really logistics. It's like in the army. You can move troops all over the world, but unless you have the capacity to supply them with ammunition and food, there's no sense putting them out there. Sam understood that. He knew that he was already in what the trade 
calls, an absentee ownership situation. That just means you're putting your stores out there where you, as management, aren't. If he wanted to grow, he had to learn to control it. Walden needed to understand inventory levels and how to communicate with the stores. He admits the importance of his shortcomings, and he says he's never a whiz-bang computer guy, so he hires people for his weaknesses. Walden has managers with skin in the game. He buys anything so long as the price is good. He has distribution systems using new technologies, and he hires people who knows more about those technologies than he does. In 1968, the first Walmart opens outside the state of Arkansas. By 1970, Walton has 38 stores and is entertaining an IPO. He IPOs in 1970, and he's going to grow through 1975. These first shareholder meetings are kind of boring, but soon after that, the shareholder meetings actually get a bit too exciting. Mike Smith, one of the bankers who led the IPO, uh, says this in the book. These get-togethers became a big hit. The Walmart folks would stay up all night barbecuing, and the analysts or other big shareholders would stay up with them to help. But after a while, things got a little out of hand for Sam's taste. Some of those Yankees got so drunk floating down Sugar Creek, they couldn't stay in the boat. And some of those fellows barbecuing had a few too many beers. Well, Sam isn't a Puritan or a strict teetotaler or anything, but he can't stand for people to get drunk. So he banned alcohol completely from the events, and of course, they were never quite the same after that. The IPO succeeded, and people would come to the meetings, though they changed over time. The stock later split and split again, and um, the 38 stores would basically go on to be a rounding error decades later. It was around this time that Walden's second paradox of retailing occurred to him. The first was that if you sell things for less, you can actually earn more. This was the discount revolution wave that Walton surfed to great success. And he says the second revelation was figuring out that if you shared your profits, you could actually earn more. This is what he writes. The more you share the profits with your associates, whether it's in salaries or incentives or bonuses or stock discounts, the more profit will accrue to the company. Why? Because the way management treats the associates is exactly how the associates will then treat the customers. And if the associates treat the customers well, the customer will return again and again. And that is where the real profits in this business lie. Not in trying to drag strangers into your stores for one-time purchases based on splashy sales or expensive advertising. So it's through this. It's through profit sharing. It's through repeat customers. It's through expansion. It's through everyday low prices that Walmart grows. By 1975, there's 125 stores as Walton is focused on his expansion strategy. More small towns. It's important to Walton that they be in small towns, no, matter, no more than a day's drive from the distribution centers that Walmart is figuring out. He writes, Our growth strategy was born out of necessity, but at least we recognized it as a strategy pretty early on. We figured we had to build our stores so that our distribution centers or warehouses could take care of them, but also so those stores could be controlled. We wanted them within reach of our district managers and ourselves here in Bentonville so we could get out there and look after them. Pretty soon, taking a look at them meant driving too far, so Walton bought some planes and hired some pilots. Those early pilots had quite a job description. Walton has always favored activity over inactivity. It's a good thing he was a retailer and not an investor. And so in the early days, he wanted his pilots to not only fly the planes, but when they weren't flying, to go to the stores and check on the stock levels. 
He says that it made perfect sense to me, but this plan did not last long. It didn't last because someone told him it was stupid, and Walton listened. He did a pretty good job of hiring well and getting out of the way. This is what he said. My role has been to pick good people and give them the maximum authority and responsibility. I let our executives make their decisions and their mistakes, but I've critiqued and advised them. Walton believes in what we call decentralized command. This is something that a lot of successful founders, entrepreneurs, investors have done. In... Um, in one book about Alice Waters at Chez Panisse, the, um, the first restaurant that really started the farm-to-table revolution in Berkeley, California. This is what one of the first employees of Alice's restaurant wrote. After just a couple of weeks, Alice trusted me to do it on my own. That's one of her characteristics, to trust people. She's less worried if you don't have the competence if your heart is in the right place and you're shooting for the right aesthetic. I got in over my head, as did Chez Panisse constantly. Brad Stone wrote about Jeff Bezos. Bezos's counterintuitive point was that coordination among employees wasted time, and that the people closest to the problem were usually in the best position to solve them. Or uh, we can look at the words of Warren Buffett. Hire well, manage little. Walton writes in his book, We're always trying to find that fine balance between autonomy and control. Another similarity with Buffett was Walton's maker rather than manager schedule. Termed by Paul Graham, who wrote, There are two types of schedules, which I'll call the manager schedule and the maker schedule. The manager schedule is for bosses. It's embodied in the traditional appointment book, with each day cut into one-hour intervals. Contrast that with the maker schedule of having half a day to work on whatever is important to you, and that's what Walton had, and it's how he succeeded. He didn't take a lot of meetings, and he was always focused on new stores and expansion and big ideas and so on. And, and this is how uh, Loretta Boss Parker, Walton's secretary for 25 years, uh, puts it in the book. In the early years, this caused a number of embarrassments. I would make appointments for him and then tell him about them. We kept two calendars, one on his desk and one on mine, but he would just totally forget. I've had people fly in here from Dallas, all set to see him. I'd come in at 8 a.m. to meet them and find he had flown out of town at 5 a.m. without telling anybody where he was going. I would just have to look at this man from Dallas and say, he's gone. So after a few times like that, I finally said, I'm not going to make appointments for you anymore. And he said, well, that's probably best. Toward the end of this period, the, through the 70s, Walton, Walton thinks about stepping back. He thinks about spending more time with his family, letting other people be in control. He'll just be a supplemental player on the executive team at Walmart. And as you can probably guess, this ends terribly. He steps back but stays involved, which is a mess. With his name on the building still suggesting things to do, who are you going to listen to? Walton's return... Um, to the CEO role and the person in charge um, is in 30 months. In 1978, we have 125 stores and Walton is back in charge. And he has Saturday morning, Saturday morning meetings for the executives. And why do the executives need to meet on Saturday mornings? Well, he figures if the retail people aren't working, then so should the executive staff. Sometimes these meetings are about things the executives saw in the stores. And he figured if you could have one good idea from your week of being in the stores and you could share it with other people, then that was worth all the travel and all the effort and all the energy and all the uh, intelligence and manpower, that that was worth all of that if you could come up with one good idea. Because if you had one good, good idea in one store, you could expand that to all the other stores. For example, the Walmart Greeter was, was one of these uh, instances. 
1980, we have 276 stores and Walmart has cracked a billion dollars in sales. Throughout the book, Walton mentions his secrets or his keys or his guiding principles for success. And there's no single one because there's no single answer to any problem. Running a successful business requires doing so many things right. Walton writes, The secret of successful retailing is to give your customers what they want. A wide assortment of good quality merchandise, the lowest possible prices, guaranteed satisfaction with what you buy, friendly, knowledgeable service, convenient hours, free parking, a pleasant shopping experience. Walmart succeeded in a time period, the post-World War II boom that led to expansion. Walton writes that people wanted to feel up-to-date, they wanted to feel modern. The interstate system and consumerism led to people traveling further for more. It was from this experience of a mostly open-arm welcome from each small town that Walmart arrived, and it led to Sam Walton feeling befuddled about the save-our-small-town-merchants resistance. Walton writes, Of all the notions I've heard about Walmart, none has ever baffled me more than this idea that we are somehow the enemy of small-town America. Walmart succeeded because customers voted with their feet. Small-town merchants failed to provide what the people wanted. <laughs> this, is what, <laughs> this is what Charlie Munger says about it. You can say, is this a nice way to behave? Well, capitalism is a pretty brutal place, but I personally think that the world is better for having a Walmart. I mean, you can idealize small town life, but I've spent a fair amount of time in small towns, and let me tell you, you shouldn't get too idealistic about all those businesses he destroyed. In the book, Walton actually gives advice to competitors about what to do. He says, do your own thing better than we do ours. Running parallel to Walton in the retail race was Carl Turner Jr., Dollar General. Like Walton, Turner bought discounted items with one requirement. Will it sell? Like Walton, he expanded slowly in one geography. Like Walton, he hired people he thought were good workers, not necessarily ones with good educations. As of 2018, there are three times as many Dollar General stores as Walmart's. Turner did his own thing and succeeded. Other places can too, though they need to follow Walton's example and adapt with the times. A decade ago, I went to a hardware store for supplies and expertise. I wanted to ask questions about the job I was about to do, and there was usually a crusty old guy there to help. Today, YouTube has become a better home for repair how-tos. In 1983, Walton opens his first Sam's Club, another small bet, another small experiment that he copied from someone else but implemented in his own way. The book is mostly full of successes, uh, and I think that's just because Walton probably forgets about the times he's failed. He says that once I decide I'm wrong, I'm ready to move on to something else. One of the missteps was actually with uh, opening the first Sam's Club, and, and uh, their template at the time was Price Club in California. Ron Loveless, a senior vice president at the time, said, We were bringing a West Coast idea to the Midwest, and we didn't know how it would be received. I remember an idea that didn't transfer well. Price Club had a huge stack of wine in the front of its stores. We bought the same amount for our stores in the Midwest. <laughs> we learned the hard way that Midwesterners aren't exactly wine drinkers. By 1987, uh, Sam Walton and Walmart are up to 1,200 stores and uh, in 25 years. And in 1992, Walton publishes the book Made in America that we just talked about. Sam Walton succeeded because he kept asking himself, what do the customers want? Walton writes this. From about 1958 until 1970, discount retailing was phenomenally successful, but that he figures, um, but he wonders why weren't most of the discount retailers that he grew up with, why didn't they succeed? Why weren't they bigger? And this is what he guesses. They were very egotistical guys who loved to drive big Cadillacs and fly around on their jets and vacation on their yachts. 
the businesses aren't around anymore, Walton guesses, because they didn't stay close enough to the business. They didn't know what their customers wanted. They didn't get out in their stores and see what was going on. This is something Walton did for a long time. He even tells a story in the book about visiting the Walmart uh, tractor-trailer drivers and taking donuts into their break room. And he asks them, how's it going? How's the unloading at this store? What do you see at this store? Is trash piling up? What about this? What about that? He says that they really try to find nuance between their stores. The Panama City Walmart and the Panama City Beach Walmart are two totally different stores. But the Beach Walmart has a lot in common with the other beach-ish locations of Walmart stores. If something works in one, if a regional manager visits that store and sees something works, he reports back to headquarters and headquarters tells the other beach stores to try that same thing. The real challenge isn't knowing what to do, writes Walton. It's figuring out how to do it. How do you serve customers? How do you provide value? Hopefully this podcast provided some value to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes. Well, that's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave. And take your book with you.